But to, to pull us into the message this morning in Mark, I want to actually read a section of Luke chapter 22. And in Luke chapter 22, verses 3 through 6, we read this, and then we'll jump into today's passage. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. And so that's kind of where we left off. And we're going to pick up this morning now as we look at Mark chapter 14, verse 12. So if you read along with me, verses 12 through 16, it reads this. And on the first day of unleavened bread... When they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. I'm going to go ahead and pray one more time, and we'll get into this. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to hear your words, to hear from you. I want to pray for all of us right now, Lord God, that we could set aside anything that may be hindering us from hearing your voice this morning. Any discouragement we may be feeling any distraction that may be before us now in our heart or our mind. Lord, we set that aside, we place that before you so we can come into your presence and hear exactly what it is that you need us to hear this morning, to apply whatever it is that we need to from your word to our life this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So again, as we had talked about before, as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, it is now Passover. And I want to kind of remind us of what Passover is, but this first section in verses 12 through 16, I'm going to kind of title this section, The Preparation. So the preparation for the Passover, we see now that he sends two disciples to go and prepare. Right? And, and what we're told in actually the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, we know who those two disciples are. It's John and Peter. They're sent to go and prepare the Passover meal. And so as part of the Passover meal, they need to find an unblemished lamb. That's according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. And remember how many people are flocking to Jerusalem at this time? We said the numbers were just swelling, right? And so some have said that roughly, and I hope this isn't too harsh for the little ones today, but roughly 250,000 lambs are sacrificed during the Passover at this time. So it's, it's, it's quite a, a spectacle. It's pretty amazing. But what else is needed? According to Exodus 12, verse 8, unleavened bread along with bitter herbs. And what we read in Exodus 12, 14 is that this day, as it's been celebrated for so long now, hundreds and hundreds of years, that this was a memorial day, a celebration, as the Word of God says, a statute forever. To remind them of what? God's deliverance from Egypt. Bringing them out of slavery setting them free, bringing them into the land that he had promised. This is what they were celebrating. They were doing it year after year after year. And so this is the time that we're in. But did you notice the specific instructions that Jesus gave? 
It was so cool to see just the very specific, go in and you're going to find a man carrying a jar. Follow him. Very simply put, and he's going to lead you to the place where we need to be. And what was it about the place that we found? It was already furnished. This room was already prepared. So what do we just sit back and take away from that? Nothing in the hand of God is by coincidence. All of it is planned out. All of it is already determined. Everything that is going to take place, that has taken place and will take place, in God's sovereignty, it's already planned. It's already prepared. That's what I love. It's not just preparing this feast. It's not just preparing this lamb or this bread or these herbs or the wine or whatever else. Yes, there is some preparation that needs to take place according to the word of God that they needed to follow. But even how they got to the room. We could even take it as far to say, did Jesus already know that Judas was going to betray him? Of course he did. And so maybe he didn't give the exact location because he, didn't, he knew it wasn't the right time. He knew the time was coming, but just maybe they just had to trust and follow this man who was going to take them exactly where they needed to be so that Judas couldn't give away the location just yet. But everything is laid out. Everything is prepared in God's sovereignty beforehand. He knew everything that was taking place. Nothing happens by accident or coincidence. So we're going to move on to the next section. Verses 17 through 21. Let's read it together, and we're going to call this section the proclamation. So we had the preparation, and now we have the proclamation. Starting in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. That's a tough word. So I think we now know who he's talking about, but they didn't. But here's this section here. Jesus announces what he had known all along that one of the twelve would betray him. But, but notice what he didn't say. He didn't give up his name, did he? He says, it's, yes, it's one of you. So if we just stop for a moment and put ourselves in the disciples' position. They've been following Jesus for a few years now. Very close, very intimate relationship. Doing ministry together, seeing him work miracles, feeding and, and eating together, and just living life together. And now they sit down at one of the most special meals of every year, and Jesus looks at them and said, one of you is going to betray me. You can imagine their heart just sank. And so each one becomes sorrowful. And they each ask, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Now, Scripture did say, each one asks, is it I? And so if we're going to provide some context to this situation, maybe even Judas asked, knowing what he had already done, Knowing the meeting he had prior with the chief priest, maybe even asked to cloak his treachery. Is it I? But here's some more context for us. If we look at this story in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, 
We see Jesus perform an act unbecoming of a rabbi in that day. What Mark doesn't give an account to, but what Jesus does for his disciples prior to all this happening is that one by one, Jesus gets down on his knees and washes his disciples' feet. So that takes place before this declaration, this proclamation. So I want you to put yourself in Judas's position just for a moment. I know you don't want to be because who wants to be associated with that kind of evil? But just for a moment, you had already made a deal to betray Jesus. Theoretically, could have been physically. You had 30 pieces of silver in your pocket that he was carrying. He may have already been paid for this act that he was going to give. And now here, the guy that you have been following, that you're going to betray to death, gets down on his knees and washes your feet. Did Jesus know? Of course he did. So what does that tell you and me? That regardless of our sin, regardless of our intent to sin, he still serves us. He still loves us, regardless of who we are, what we've done, or even what we intend to do. What an amazing position. But what was going on in Judas's mind? Just think about that for a minute. Put yourself in that mindset, knowing what you had done, and yet here is Jesus loving on you sincerely what was going through his mind. Was there an opportunity in that moment? Was there an opportunity for him to repent? Was there an opportunity there for him to take that 30 pieces of silver and go give it back, go return it, or truly go do something with it to help the ministry? Yeah. Judas was still a man. Judas was still a sinner. Even though his story is being used by God to fulfill Scripture, he's still a man that had the opportunity to act, to respond to repent. But as the story goes, John 13, verse 1, I want you to hear these words. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Could you look at somebody who you knew had done such an evil act of treachery, whether it was against you or not, and still love them unashamedly, unreservedly love them as Jesus loves them. It's difficult for us to do, but that's what Jesus was doing in this moment. He loved them to the end. I know we mentioned this last week, but it's worth mentioning again. Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 6 and 8. Verse 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And in verse 8, it says, But God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. This is the interaction between Judas and Jesus. Imagine that scene. Imagine the mentality. But all of this is done to fulfill Scripture. All of this. If we go back to Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. Psalm chapter 41, verse 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This has all been known 
God knew of this exact moment. His timing is perfect. His will is perfect. It was all planned out. But again, I want us to step back and realize that these disciples are still men, still sinful men, still had that opportunity. Yes, was Judas used to fulfill Scripture in such a treacherous way? Absolutely. Are we to sit here and judge Judas? No. If we do, we judge ourselves because we're in the same boat. It's how we're going to respond to the opportunities given to us. How often Jesus gives us opportunity to repent of our ways, to move towards him in a way of grace and love and live righteously according to Scripture. How many opportunities has he given you to respond to his love? How many opportunities has he given Judas in this moment? Just in this upper room moment, he gave him plenty of opportunity. So again, verse 21, the first half of it says, as it is written of him. So again, scripture was pointing to this moment. Jesus points this out. How many times did Jesus tell the disciples and prepare them that I'm going to be betrayed, that I'm going to be reviled, that I'm going to be arrested and tried and beaten and crucified, yet rise again we mentioned three specific ones that mark's gospel gave us and we, we even mentioned another one and here he does it again so going back to mark chapter 9 verse 12 says yet why do the scriptures say that the son of man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter, utter contempt we can jump forward to peter peter would write about this later on in in his writing in his epistles i'm going to read first peter 1 Verses 10 and 11, I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. It says, This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about. When they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you, they wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. How they wanted to know everything that was transpiring that these disciples got to witness. And if we go back to the scriptures that were present at the time of this Passover, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by what? His wounds we are healed. It was all coming to this point. All of history, all of God's plan was coming to this point right here, right now. The time was being fulfilled. But I want to bring a little emphasis to the final half of what Jesus says in verse 21. He makes quite a statement that I think we need to bring some clarity to. He says, all of scripture was pointing to this. This was written about me. This is what was the plan. But woe to the man. It would be better if he was not even born. Why would Jesus say something like that? Did that catch anybody off guard? Why would he say it would be better if this man, we know as Judas, had not even been born? I want to bring some clarity to it because I think it's important. I came across a quote by C.E.B. Cranfield. 
He says, the fact that God turns the wrath of man to his praise does not excuse the wrath of man. Did you follow that? I'm going to read that one more time. The fact that God turns the wrath of man to his praise does not excuse the wrath of man. We decide to live in and play out our sin in who we are just because we could step back and go, well, it must be part of God's plan and make all these excuses and justifications for the things that we do that are apart from God's word and choose to live in our sin does not excuse us just because Christ died for our sins. So the point being made is we need to stop making those excuses. We need to stop living in a way that's saying, well, I know God will forgive me, so I'm just going to go ahead and take advantage of that grace. I'm going to take advantage of that crucifixion, that death, that torture that he went through to wipe out all of my sin. I'll just take advantage of it because it's been forgiven. So I can live how I want. Shame on us if we live that way. Shame on us. We are accountable to God's word at all times, in all that we do, in, in who we are. We are responsible for our sinful action. Yes, Jesus died for your sins. But you, you cannot use that to live how you want. But we do that all too often, don't we? I think we need to know the difference between saying, I'm sorry, and repenting of our sins. Do we understand the difference? All too often as an educator, as a teacher, or specifically as, a, as an administrator, as a vice principal, I would be given the blessing of handing out the discipline. And sometimes catching those kids. And so many times I receive the excuse, I'm sorry. And I call that an excuse because they were only sorry because they got caught. So there's a big difference between just saying these words, I'm sorry, and actually repenting of the things that we've done wrong. Because we've been convicted by the Holy Spirit that in our heart and in our mind, we know we just went against the word of God and decided to step away from God's grace. That's where that conviction needs to lie, and that's the difference between repenting, which means completely turning from that sin and running in the opposite direction versus saying, oh, shucks, I guess I messed up. I'm sorry. You know, if you're a parent in this room, you get it. I know you get that. And kids, students in this room, I know you understand that as well, but it needs to resonate with us a little bit more, all of us. And so this is a situation that Jesus is speaking to. What does it say in Romans chapter 6, verses 22 and 23? But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we can't just say, well, I've got a sinful nature, so I guess I'm going to sin. Therefore, when I make that mistake, oops, I'm sorry, it's who I am. We've we, we got to get out of that mindset. We've got to remove that from us. We are made for righteousness. We are made and set free from all of that. You remember that back and forth game I was talking about not too long ago? 
We know we're supposed to live in Christ and pursue sanctification and righteousness and perfection and his glory, but yet we continue to eke our way over to this side because we love what the world has to offer. And we play this game of back and forth. It's, I'm over here because I want this. Oh, sorry, God, I better come back over here. And then we just inch our way back over. Oh, sorry, God. And we just keep playing this I'm sorry game. And so maybe that's what we need to rest on this morning for some of us is give that to the Lord. Stop playing that game of Christianity of taking advantage of God's grace and forgiveness and pursue a life that is of Him always, at all times. But here's what Jesus is explaining by this message he gives, that it would be better if he had not been born. Because he explains that the eternal separation from God results in eternal punishment. You continue to live this life of sin and separate yourself from God. The result of that is eternal punishment. So why would it have been better if Judas had never been born? Because knowing what he was about to do, knowing he's going to separate himself from God, he is going to be held accountable to the things that he had done and suffer eternal damnation and eternal punishment. So if he had never existed, it wouldn't have happened. But because he does exist and because we exist, we are accountable to God. We are accountable to his word and how we live our life. And we will stand before him one day and give an account for the way that we live and the things that we've done. We need to get back to Jesus and live for him in a way that is so radical and different from the rest of the world. And I think that's a big problem because a lot of people want to play that game of Judas and disciples or Judas and, and Jesus and and there's no difference from the world's perspective as to what life in Christ is really like. Because, oh, you can do these things. That makes sense. And just call yourself a good person or be moral, be good once in a while. But, no, we've got to pursue that always. Especially, now listen, especially out of the sight of other people. How are we living our life outside of the perception and vision of other people. That determines your character, your integrity in Jesus Christ. So again, imagine the mind of Judas when he speaks these words. He lived life in ministry. He washes his feet and now speaks these words, and yet Judas carries on. John 13 Verses 27 through 30 tells us, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. You see this personal relationship between Jesus and Judas in this moment? Nobody else in the room knew Judas was the one. Up until that point that Jesus gives him the okay to excuse himself from this feast to go and do what he was going to do, knowing what he was going to do. Go make the plans. 
Because Jesus knew, my time is now. Now is the time. Go and do what you're going to do. So again, this whole time, Judas could have repented. He could have confessed. He could have returned the 30 pieces of silver, but he didn't. He allowed his pride to take advantage of Jesus. He allowed his pride to take advantage of the ministry he was involved in. Jesus' humble love, the washing of his feet, the sharing of a meal. And he continued to do what he did. We get so ingrained in our life, we become blind and deaf to where we need to be in Christ. And that's where Judas was. Let's move on to the final section. So we talked about the preparation, talked about the proclamation, and now we're going to talk about what's called the propitiation. I'm going to explain that word if you're not familiar with it. The propitiation. Let's read verses 22 through 26 together. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this now here is a section that is titled the Lord's Supper, the institution of a new covenant. And we call it the propitiation. So what does Jesus do in three aspects? Number one, he replaces that Passover lamb with himself. He replaces that Passover lamb with himself. At least in one year, this 250,000 lambs that were murdered, sacrificed, not murdered, excuse me, wrong word, sacrificed for the purpose of the Passover. Not a single one of them, not a single drop of any of those hundreds of thousands of lambs' blood was going to do anything for anybody. So Jesus replaces those lambs with himself. Can I take us back to what his cousin said of him? In John chapter 1, when Jesus was just starting his ministry, John the Baptist sees him coming, and what does John the Baptist say of him? Behold, the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sins of the world. So at the beginning of his ministry, his cousin recognized this about him. His cousin knew why he was here, why he was on this earth. And what do we read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7? He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He replaced that Passover lamb with himself as the lamb of God. Number two, he replaced the unleavened bread with himself. John 6, 32 through 35 says, Truly, truly, Jesus speaking, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. One, he replaced the lamb with himself. Two, he replaced the bread with himself. 
And three, he replaces the wine with himself. The wine they drank, which is tradition at their meal, in a similar way, in the same way that Mary completely poured out that spikenard, that ointment, anointing Jesus' feet, top of his head, down to his feet, Jesus would completely pour out himself, Isaiah tells us. Tearing his body apart, his blood would flow, completely poured out to the point of death. He replaces the wine with himself and the blood that he would shed that takes away the sins of the world. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So let me come back to what we entitled this last section, the propitiation. It's not a word we typically use in, in our language today, right? But, but what does it mean? What does propitiation mean? Basically means atonement. All good? Clear? Another word we commonly use? Atonement? No, maybe not. Propitiation means atonement. What does atonement mean? Payment. Jesus took our place. He is the propitiation, the atonement that took our place, sacrificed himself so that we would be set free, so that we would be forgiven, so that we would have salvation and eternal life because of what he did for us. That's what propitiation means. A lot of people will say, Jesus was your substitute. I like that. That's okay. But as a former educator who at one time was a substitute teacher, a substitute comes in for what? A day? Temporarily? So I kind of sat on that for a minute and went, you know what, substitute is fine. I'm not taking anything away. If you want to use that term, that's fine. But for me as a teacher, it's like a substitute is, is there one day, gone tomorrow. It's temporary. What we need to understand that Jesus Christ acting as our propitiation was a permanent replacement for us. So let that serve as another reminder as to where we need to be in our life in Christ that we can't serve him wholeheartedly, temporarily, and then go right back to what we want to do. No, that permanent sacrifice, that permanent blood that was uh, shed and that body that was crushed and that death he went through on the cross for us was permanent so therefore we ought to live permanently covered by the blood of christ in our life first peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 says knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of christ that like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ's sacrifice on the cross makes us new. You know, that Passover feast they were celebrating was a memorial. It was a celebration, a statute that they were to remember forever, right? And so Jesus takes that, says, nothing wrong with that, but I'm instituting something brand new to give you new life, to give you new meaning a new covenant, and in that, I want you to celebrate that forever as a memorial to God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt? No. God sacrificing his son so that we could live. Amen? That's what we remember. And that's why Jesus would say in Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, do this in remembrance 
of me. So let's do that now. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to celebrate partaking communion together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth, Lord God.